And um, so I went to the fount of knowledge for that type of thing. I went to the Internet. And I, um, you know, to learn up how to gain personal power. You know, and what I learned, that really has to do with the ability to, to personally change the direction of my life. That's what the article I was reading explained. And it, it was very helpful. However, it was clear from the article that people who are truly serious about this will take the paid self-mastery program. And uh, so being cheap and powerful, unfortunately, do not go together. Now, our text presents a different perspective about power. I invite you to turn with me uh, to Acts chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 25. Acts chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. I'm going to read the first three verses here. And Saul approved of his execution, that is, the execution of Stephen. And there arose on the day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So what's happening here is the first wave of persecution against the church now begins. Up to the the time that Stephen uh, was arrested and, and stoning, there really had not been that much in the way of persecution. Only the apostles had ever been arrested. One time they were beaten. And now this, this, which really can be described only as a mob action against Stephen, because they just rush him out of wherever he was and they just stone him. That's evidently the tipping point of what has been a building up hostility by the religious authorities. Young Saul now spearheads a concerted attack against the Jerusalem church, and he and no doubt the religious authorities are determined to crush this new movement. He acts with zeal, with a ruthless determination. He goes into people's homes, even dragging out women out of their homes. And this is power indeed, isn't it? And yet it proves not only to be powerless against the spread of the gospel, it actually even sparks the movement to even greater territory. In verse 4, we see what happens. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. We're not told why the apostles uh, were not scattered. All we're told is that, quote, they were scattered. We're not told who they are. Probably what it just means is just the regular, normal, ordinary church members. And as they were scattered, they took on the role of personal evangelists. The word here, the Greek word here for preaching, means specifically to evangelize. It is to tell the good news. It is not the kind of preaching 
that I'm doing, for example, from a pulpit. It can include that kind of preaching. But it's just any way, any kind of form of way of telling the good news. So preaching in this case for these, for they, is to go out to individuals and tell the content of the gospel. Namely, tell about Jesus' death and his resurrection as the Messiah. Now, the first named evangelist here is Philip, and he will demonstrate what the message is about. So look with me again in verses 5 through 8. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. Now, Philip's very trip, his evangelistic trip to Samaria, is itself significant. Because it represents not merely the gospel going to larger territory, but among a different cultural group altogether. Philip could have traveled to other parts of Judea. He could have even gone up around Samaria up to Galilee, which was the home territory of Jesus and the apostles. Samaria itself, what it could be described as is simply hostile territory. Jews and Samaritans were natural antagonists. They were, they were cousins, so to speak. Jews regarded Samaritans as half-breeds. They were half-Jewish, half-Gentile. Samaritans claimed to be descendants of Abraham. He claimed to have the same religion. But the Jews, and rightly so, regarded their faith and their practices as corrupt. And now we have here a Jew. Now remember this. The first Christians were Jews. We have a Jew traveling to Samaria to the, to the capital of Samaria with the gospel. Now, what does he proclaim? Well, we're told he proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ. That is, he's the Messiah. That's the same message that the apostles have been preaching to the Jews in Jerusalem. And what happens? Well, lo and behold, the Samaritans listen. They even receive this gladly. Now, for two reasons. One was the message itself. I have to remember the Samaritans, by the way, they were not ignorant of Jesus. You remember the story of the Samaritan woman at the well? You remember what happens? Jesus and his disciples end up staying two days in that Samaritan village. And what's told? That many came to faith. In fact, they said, we now know you to be the Savior of the world. That was actually a more advanced faith that any of the Jews had arrived at, including Jesus' own disciples. Now, the other reason is attributed to why they would have listened. It's attributed to the miraculous signs that Philip performed. I mean, he, he cast out demons. He healed the sick. And these signs were affirming Philip's testimony. Now, they also attracted the attention of those who are enamored of power. 
And this brings us to Simon. Let's pick back up in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, what are we to make of Simon? What are we to make of this response of the Samaritans to Simon? He had performed, up to that time, what seemed to be acts of power. And as a result, people paid attention to him. They attributed him to being a powerful being from God, maybe even a God himself. Now, did they see in Philip, when he comes, this simply kind of a better competitor for their attention? It's possible. But there is a distinction of Philip preaching the good news, okay, of preaching the name of Jesus Christ. Simon did not have a preaching ministry. He's merely winning attention to himself. And what of Simon himself? Does he become a true believer? I mean, Luke says here in Acts that he believed and he became baptized. He followed Philip. But it's that last sentence that gives him away. Remember what it says? And seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. It was clear that what had Simon's attention was not the message of Jesus Christ as his Savior. Wow, these acts of power that Philip is showing. And this will become even more evident in the next scene, beginning in verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, what's, what's happening here regarding baptism? You know, this being baptized by the, the Holy Spirit. Well, the clue is found in what was said previously about Philip bringing the gospel. Remember what I was saying, that he's not only taking it to broader territory, but to a new culture altogether? There are only four times in Acts that we read of scenes of a special baptism of the Holy Spirit. We've already read of one. That was at Pentecost. Our own text here is the second time. There will be a third time in the home of the Gentile centurion. Uh, Cornelius. And then there'll be a fourth reference in Ephesus, where we're told that some had received the baptism of John the Baptist. Now, in each instance, there's a movement, especially the first three, of the first time reception of the gospel to a new people group, 
First, there is the Jewish people themselves at Pentecost. Now we're moving it to to Samaritan, to Samarian, to these half-breeds, so to speak. And then with Cornelius, it goes all the way to the Gentiles. In each instance, what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is doing is it is certifying God's approval. That This is what God is doing. How do we know that the gospel of Jesus is of God at Pentecost? See the baptism of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles. How do we know that the gospel is actually for Samaritans? See, we're going to learn, by the way, that the first church controversy was over whether or not the gospel could be given to Gentiles. So how do we know that it can go to the Samaritans? See the baptism of the Holy Spirit. How do we know that this, um, that Jesus is the Messiah even for Gentiles? Well, again, in Cornelius' home, we're going to see the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, couldn't Philip have taken care of that? Why were Peter and John needed to come and administer the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, think of who Peter and John are. They are the head apostles of the church. The whole reason they're probably even going to Samaria is they're checking out to see if this really is something of God. They've got to give approval to it. Now, if they administer the baptism, who could possibly dispute the legitimacy of the, of the conversion of the Samaritans? So they are bringing all of their authority to that. And there had to be something a little bit more to the baptism of the Spirit. Some kind of power had to be evidence. Maybe it was the speaking in tongues. But whatever it was, Simon wanted in on it. He not only wanted such a baptism for himself, he wanted to have the same power that Peter and John have. Okay? I mean, this is great what Philip's been doing. But obviously, these guys, they're the head powerful people. They're the greater magicians. So in verse 18, we read, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He just doesn't get it, does he? He thinks that the apostles possess this power of themselves. What he has been pretending to be all along, he thought they really were these divine type beings and somehow. And he also thought that this kind of power was transferable. Now, perhaps he thought that they were going to, they could say some kind of incantation. Maybe they lay hands on, on him or, or something. But, but then here is where he just completely misses the boat altogether. Not only does he think that the power can be transferable, he thinks that the apostles are in this religious business for the money. I mean, that's why he's in the business of doing his magic stuff. Well, whatever it was that Simon thought he believed of of Philip's preaching, he exposes by this an unconverted heart. And Peter makes this clear. 
Let's look again in our text. Now in verse 20. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could attain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And let's look at Peter's diagnosis of Simon. It is a severe one, isn't it? What does he say about Simon? First, your heart is not right before God. Your desire for power, it is wickedness. You are in the gall of bitterness. Now, he might mean that Simon, he's diagnosing that Simon is bitter about not having the power. But more likely, because Peter would have known his scriptures, he's probably alluding back to Deuteronomy 29.18. And there it describes the false follower of God as a bitter, poisonous root. And so he's saying your heart is poisonous, both for yourself and for those whom you deceive. And then finally he notes that Simon is in the bond of iniquity. He is a slave to his sinful heart. So what does Peter do? He, he does what he tells everyone to do. He calls on Simon to repent, to pray for God's forgiveness. It is the gospel call. What does Simon do? He deflects it. You do the praying. Now, I don't know if he's thinking only Peter, because he has more power, can, can get him off the hook. I think probably more likely is the case. He's just trying to avoid his own responsibility and wants no more to do with this. So then Peter and John return to Jerusalem. But something has happened to them, by the way. Their eyes have been opened up in a way that it had not been before. Now they are seeing that the gospel is even for those obstinate Samaritans. And so instead of hastening through the Samaritan village like they had to do to get to the real prospects, maybe get up to Galilee, now as they go back, what do they do? They evangelize every village they come to. Wow, the gospel is even for them. And so we're told now, verse 25, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And there are a number of lessons that different characters in this story can teach us. And let's go back over that. First of all, there's the lesson of they, the unnamed folks who are just scattered because of persecution. They're the unknown regular folks. And they are being persecuted. They must leave They must flee the city, and what do they do wherever they go? They share the gospel. I mean, you think about this. They're being run out of their homes for the gospel. They are forced to take refuge elsewhere. And you would think that they would keep a low profile. 
But instead of that, they do what's just become natural for them. They share the gospel that has changed them. So what do they teach us? They teach us that like them, we don't need to be ordained. We don't need to be church leaders. We don't need to have had special education. We simply need, as Paul would later tell the Colossians, speak clearly, speak graciously of the gospel that has changed our lives. That's all we got to do. You don't have to have special courses, special degrees, but what we have heard, what we have received, share it with others. Then there's Philip. What does Philip teach us? He teaches us a couple of things. Philip teaches us the same thing about just anyone can be the evangelist. Philip was, do you know what he was? He was a deacon. He was ordained a deacon in the church specifically 